Hi, and welcome to episode 36 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we have Joan Comrie joining us. Joan Dietrich Comrie received her BS and MS at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the owner of Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing, located in St. Petersburg, Florida. After 10 years of working in the neonatal intensive care nursery, she started a large pediatric feeding and swallowing practice in Raleigh, North Carolina, which she had for 20 years until she moved to St. Petersburg in 2015. She has treated over 5,000 patients, focusing on infant feeding and swallowing. Her clinical expertise has enabled her to provide real examples used in her presentations at national and international conferences and workshops. She has guest lectured for UNC medical residents and graduate level speech pathologists during pediatric grand rounds and physician meetings. She provides hands-on learning opportunities for feeding therapists and lactation consultants. Part of her mission is education for parents and professionals. She started Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Academy in which she is a live course for lactation consultants and soon her course for feeding therapists will be available. Joan has also published an article in seminars and speech and language on infant feeding. She has also responded to parent questions in the health section of News and Observer, Raleigh's newspaper, and in parent magazines. Her success is due in part to her STEP program, Systematic Therapeutic Eating Program, in which she breaks down the sensory and motor skills required for successful feeding and swallowing into understandable steps. When caregivers understand the process and how skills build on each other, they are more likely to follow the program. This compliance enables progression as quickly and as smoothly as possible. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Thank you, Joan, for joining us on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you here. You're welcome. I'm really glad to be here. Well, let's just jump right on in and start talking about optimal timing of release. Um, I would love for you to share what that means to you and how you use that in your practice. I think that is something that's so important and sometimes overlooked. And I think in part, maybe a lot of the um, Facebook parent on parent conversations. Is this a tongue tie? Should I get it released? Um, I think it's super important to get with your preferred providers and talk to them about the optimal timing. And some of the things that need to be considered is you definitely need to understand the baby's oral and sensory motor skills. Do they have active patterns or are they more restricted? And even if a baby has Um, passive. So I I like to make a delineation between passive and active patterns. And so passive um, range of motion to me would be, can I lift baby's tongue up into the roof of their mouth? Mm -hmm. If I can do that, then they may or may not need a release, but it's more likely that they just are not for whatever reason using those patterns. And so if you have a baby whose tongue is sitting flat on the bottom of their mouth and you do a release, it's likely that that baby is not going to start activating their tongue, even though they have that range of motion that would enable them to do that. They maybe don't know how to do it. Maybe they've never done it. 
those neuromotor patterns are not integrated into their system. Um, I think it's really important to make that delineation. And I think sometimes just because the baby doesn't have that passive range of motion, they'll get the release. And I think that's why in part parents aren't super happy because breastfeeding is still a problem or whatever kind of feeding that they're doing. Um, and I, it's really interesting to me. I just moved here to Florida four years ago. In the first two years I was here, I was still going back to North Carolina with my private practice running it remotely and then realized that was not working very well. So, um, you know, I sold that practice. But what I, I was in North Carolina for, I'm guessing, like 28 years um, working in the hospital, in the NICU there, and then started a private practice um, after about 10 years of being in that NICU, or eight years, I think it was. Um, and so everyone knew me. I knew all the resources. They all knew me. And it was awesome because I would see almost all the babies before they actually got the release. Mm-hmm. And that way I could teach mom and dad or whoever the caregiver is how to get in a baby's mouth, how to be comfortable, what to look for, how to make some, teaching them some of the stretches that the, the ENT or the dentist would be teaching the parents what to do. And so they're feeling comfortable and competent about getting in the mouth. So it's not like they got the release and then they're like, oh my God, the baby's screaming. Like, what do, do I have to stick my fingers in there and make them more upset? And so baby was more comfortable with having someone kind of invading their territory. Um, And we could work through some of the motor issues. And I feel like, so here in Florida, not as well known, people are just starting to get to know me. Um, I see most of the babies here after they've had the release and then they consider it a fail because Mm. the baby isn't feeding, still is not feeding well. And so then they'll find me or they'll a lactation consultant or someone will refer them to me. And I feel like they would have done so much better if people would have looked at that facial and head symmetry, looked at where is that baby's tongue rest position? What, what does their mouth look like at rest? Are they, is their mouth wide open? What is their muscle tone like? What is their, you know, breathing like? Are they open mouth breathers? Are they nasal breathers? Um, Does that tongue float to the palate when the mouth is closed or does it still hang low in the mouth? Um, Because we know that tongue is that natural palatal expander. And so it's so important for airway. I mean, you know that you have all the airway people. It's awesome. Um, And then I think it's really important to look at what happens when baby's crying, because if they don't have really active function, if they can passively lift that tongue up or even if they're screaming their heads off and that tongue doesn't even elevate, that gives you a lot of information about what their range of motion is like and what maybe could be supportive of that baby to ensure that when they do get that release, all the systems are as intact as they can be, babies as functional as they can be. And so they get that release and things just seem to fall in place a lot better. Babies still may need feeding therapy or intervention by a speech pathologist or someone who has that expertise. But at least that baby is ready because their muscles are balanced, their movement patterns are organized, their nervous system is more resilient, and they're able to tolerate the procedure. I've seen babies 
here in Florida, way more than I ever see in North Carolina that just lose their mind. And they are, after the procedure, screaming for weeks. And I didn't see that up in North Carolina. And I, I guess I didn't, until I came here, didn't put together that babies were better prepared for that procedure than they are down here if they don't get any kind of body work, whether it is a speech pathologist or chiropractor or craniosacral therapist, whomever is actually moving that body system and making sure that that baby is, is ready and that they have a competent airway. Because as you know, there's some babies that really do not need to have that tongue released or they're gonna get into airway trouble. And I, I think a lot of times people are not aware of that and as much as maybe they should be. Um, yeah. So I think those are important. I think that's a really interesting distinction between North Carolina and Florida to see, you know, when you kind of went like, wait a second, what is going on here? And you kind of, you realize when something is so second nature to you, because that's just what you do. You do that right. optimal, that, that, you know, it's optimal timing. We do that pre-op work and all of a sudden these babies are not necessarily getting it or maybe they're just coming for, you know, to see you once and they're not actually getting the enough care pre-op and then, you know, that's when I first got into working with babies, that's what I was getting. I was getting a lot of these babies who were not getting any pre-op work. They were getting released. And then now they're three months, four months old and breastfeeding has failed. They're trying to, you know, mom's trying to go back to work or they're five, six months old. They're trying to introduce solids and that's not going well. Um, and there, there just seemed to be this like four to six month old age that were I initially, I was getting a lot of babies in that range and I was going, something's off here. <laughs> There's something, too late. Yeah. Too late. something is off here. And, you know, and it just, can we get them back on track? Sure. But it's going to take a heck of a lot longer and a lot more work on mom and dad and, you know, all the caregivers involved and the therapists involved and the team as a whole. It's just, it's a much more stressful process and a lengthy one at that. And so it's really amazing to see what happens when you prep the baby properly. And um, the parents. Yeah. Right. And the parents and that's, and right. So the parents, you know, when I say prep the baby too, I think in my brain, I just go, really, that's the parents, right? You have to kind of encourage them like, Hey, this is what we need to do beforehand. This is what's going to happen, you know, during the procedure and immediately following. And, and you might see this little roller coaster of baby, you know, and the so many days following the procedure. And then with all the work we've done and, you know, we should see X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, then they might need you know, A, B, and C. And you know, I just think that having the education component in there for the parents and doing that pre-op work is, I mean, I've seen such a huge difference, but then also going and talking to those release providers and being, you know, and making sure that they're aware of this as well, because I just think people aren't aware and they just hear, oh, tongue tie releases. It helps the baby. Let's, yeah, let's help the babies. And so I don't think anybody in my area is doing it to harm the child, but I think there is a lot of harm coming out of it because of the lack of information or education surrounding optimal timing of release, which is why I wanted to jump right into that topic. So thank you for that. Um, and so when do you feel post-release like feeding therapy is indicated? And, and I guess even maybe delineating between like babies who have had pre-op and babies who haven't had pre-op, or is that, is it really, do you, look at it separately based on those factors or are you just looking at a set of symptoms? 
Well, I guess you can look at it separately, but together. So if the baby's already been in, um, let's say, in session with me and we've been working on the patterns, then once they get that release, I'm ensuring that the baby is as active as it possibly can be, given the range of motion that they were just provided by the release. Mm -hmm. um, the, the hard part is the babies, when the mom comes in and they're like super, super frustrated because they feel like, okay, I've spent all this money because at least here in Florida, it tends to be a dentist and medical doesn't cover it. When I was in North Carolina, most of the babies I saw went to the ENT who did a phenomenal job and was actually trained by, um, with Kathy Jenna Watson and okay. um, maybe I said her name backwards. I always forget if it's Watson or Jenna Watson. But anyways, trained up with her, like we, we, got her connected, it got them connected, and Dr. Corellis. Mm -hmm. And so he, um, both, it was a female and a male um, physician, they were extremely good about care. Um, whereas down here, it's a dentist and they're paying out of pocket and they're really frustrated. And the last thing they wanna do is then go into more therapy. But you know what I'm trying to help people understand, one is coming before, but if you're not, then, if the baby has that good range of motion passively, but they're not activating, it is time. Don't wait. Don't wait weeks. If the baby's not doing it immediately, yeah. you know, it's not going to happen. They just don't have that muscle pattern. They don't know what to do. And we forget that babies start swallowing, you know, gestationally at about 16 weeks, I think is about the time. And so if they have the restriction of that tongue, they have been compensating, and we know compensatory um, patterns by babies are not typical patterns. They're compensating for something that's not working right. And so they could very well be compensating from you know 16 weeks gestation. And then if we end up getting them by, let's say six to eight or worse, 12 weeks, they have been using patterns that have not been very effective for a long time. So the importance of feeding therapy is so that we can identify what those patterns are and then, you know, help eliminate those patterns. Because if those aren't eliminated, then they're not going to use a new pattern. And, you know, we are not motivated to change our ways unless something's not working for us. Same thing with babies. Yeah. You know, if it's if if mom has a good milk supply, or maybe not, or maybe they're using the SNS or whatever they're using to help facilitate the feeding patterns, but we're not changing the baby's motor patterns, and the baby's still getting fed, they don't realize that they need to make a change. Mm -hmm. um, for me, like, and I might be like jumping around, but that made me think about the mom that allows the baby to get this little tiny latch. And she's like, it's okay. It doesn't really hurt that much. And I'm like, okay, but your baby is a few weeks old. When they get to be, you know, 12 weeks old and they're really strong and they're yeah. not using their tongue, they're using their jaw, it's not going to be very helpful. Yeah. And the baby's not going to change because they don't know they should change, mm -hmm. right? They don't have that motor pattern. And so I try to tell moms what you're allowing the baby to do is your way of saying this is okay. And if it's not okay to tuck your lips in, because we know like when I do presentations or even when I'm talking to moms, I'm like, pull your lips in and everybody pulls their lips in and you're like, where'd your tongue go? Retracts. Mm -hmm. That's the 
exact opposite pattern that you want for breastfeeding. You want that tongue to come forward. And so if the baby, instead of having these nice flanged lips, is tucking those lips under, you're telling them it's okay. And maybe in the first six weeks, it's going to work because you've got your, you know, mom's tanking up for baby and really compensating so baby doesn't have to do very active patterns. And then all of a sudden, growth changes, neurologic and central nervous system maturation, and things just start to fall apart. And they wonder why. Well, it's because the baby was never set with a good set of patterns. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as far as post-release goes, the other issue that is, or I guess statement that is said by some professionals that is not helpful is about weight gain, right? You'll get a lot of pediatricians say, oh, well, they're gaining weight, so they're fine. You know, and, and again, this is not to to speak negatively about our pediatricians. They are generalists. They're not usually specialists. And they don't know it's an issue unless you bring it up. But a parent may also not know it's an issue unless somebody has brought that to their attention. So here we are in this like, you know, cycle of nobody really knows what to talk about. They just know something's not working and no one can quite figure out um, what to do about it. And so I think that's when feeding therapy also, if something seems off, regardless of whether or not baby's, you know, gaining weight, um, as you've mentioned here, you know, I think it, that's a really, really good point that we should, we need to really highlight out there that people know weight gain right. is not the end all be all. Right. Um, you know, I and had it in my, out, and it doesn't rule out a feeding disorder either. Right. Right. You know? I have a very picky eater who had her tongue tie released it too, who was always in the first percentile. And what my pediatrician would say was, well, she's on her own growth curve and she's still gaining. So she's fine. And I, even with in utero, they thought about inducing me early because they noticed that her brain was taking all the nutrients and her stomach was not getting them. And they said, you know, if this continues, we might have to induce you early. And then she ended up being fine, but she's just always been this little tiny, you know, and I always joke, I'm like, I wish I had that issue and had this (laughs) tiny little petite waist. Um, but, (laughs) but, but in reality, she was that child who had a very shallow latch. I took her to the lactation consultant and it's like, you take your car to the shop and everything works fine while you're there. Um, they said, Oh, she's great. I don't know what the problem is. Like go home and just, you know, try this new hold I showed you. And Obviously, it didn't work, and our 45-minute feedings continued around the clock for 13 months. So, um, and it was never okay. But in my mind, even as a new mom and someone who was doing feeding therapy at the time, I was not working with infants. I was doing like the two plus or the 12 month plus crowd, and most of them were moving away from breastfeeding and really, you know, on open cup, straw cup, solids, um, spoons, and forks, and you know. And so for me. I didn't even know as that feeding therapist that this was not normal and it shouldn't hurt and you shouldn't feel it until I then had my second one and I did learn, but then I had my second one who was released at day five and immediately, like you said, it should start working right away. And she immediately latched. I was like, I don't even feel her. I can't feel her feeding. Like this is bizarre. And, and we had a great feeding experience after that. So, you know, had we not, she would have been seeing a feeding specialist other than myself, because as a new mom, I was like in la la land. But yeah. (laughs) You can't be a mom and a therapist at the same time. You know, an interesting story. My first son was preemie and I had worked in NICUs for 10 years and he went to my NICU and I'm like, dude, you're supposed to come home. You're not supposed to be here. But anyways, I was very competent feeding, bottle feeding babies, because I've done it for 
like about 10 years when he was born. So if he took a bottle, he was a professional bottle drinker, like never choked. Every time I nursed him, he coughed and choked and sputtered. And it was just so hard. And he's old enough now that, you know, it wasn't the day when we had iPhones, which I, you know, and I was a mom, but I was also a feeding therapist and I should know how to feed this baby. Mm -hmm. And um, if I could have videotaped this awesome pacing technique that I did with him, like he would have one or two sucks. I would give him a non-neutral, I'd pull him off. I don't know if you can see, pull him off, give him a non-nutritive suck, put him back on. He'd do one or two sucks. We did that through the whole feeding. I don't remember how many months because I was so like <laughs> devastated that I went home without a baby, you know, oh, yeah. but it is a technique that I use with some moms now. And it, it, it just was so rhythmic and coordinated and organized. And it was just like such a beautiful thing. But I know like it's, we all have babies that <laughs> As soon as you have your own child and you're like new mom, no sleep and hormones are glaring, you're kind of like, what do I do for a living? (laughs) Is this normal? I can't remember. You know, and I guess there's always a silver lining, right? So with him having some early breastfeeding issues in the NICU, of course, because he was intubated and blah, blah, blah. He had all those, you know, interventions that are not very supportive of oral function, Um, even though I will... I do admit, and I even told the neonatologist, when he was intubated and no one was watching me, I was in there working on his oral function. And it's really interesting because when I went back to work, the neonatologist is like, Joan, I cannot believe that he was such a good bottle feeder and he could breastfeed because when he was born, he didn't have a suck. And I'm like, well, (laughs) when you turned your head the other way, I might have been doing something. You weren't watching me. And then of course I'm praying. I'm like, please do not exit you know, extubate this baby or, you know, cause, cause them to desat or something. I was like, but I really honestly think that that early intervention that I did made a huge difference in his ability to feed. It's, yeah. you know, very so fascinating. Not that I'm advocating that no, no, no. work in the NICU go when a baby's intubated to work in their mouth. But for me, that worked. And I think that was very supportive of his oral function. Yeah. Well, and I think that just speaks to the whole early intervention, right? The sooner we get in there, yes. the earlier we can change those patterns and and, and get rid of the compensatory compensatory patterns that they might be right. using and, and correct them. Um, right. And it, obviously, the earlier it is, the easier it is to do that because, you know, the more time that they've passed, just the more solidified those, you know, atypical right. patterns become. So, which you've spoken a, a bit too. So I think that's also a really good point. And I think when I've had other professionals or physicians or whomever say, well, they don't really know when I should refer them to you. I'm like, as soon as you think there's an issue, because the best case scenario would for me to say, do X, Y, and Z, baby looks awesome. This is going to be just a short little tweaking and you're good, you know, and then the other, I guess, best case scenario is you got in early because we know, as you said, the earlier, when I get a baby in their three plus months to work on breastfeeding issues, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be so challenging because their patterns are so set by three months. Yeah. It's really hard to make some changes. It is, it is. And and you can do it, but it takes a long time. And I also find that those cases that come to me that are past that, like let's say three month, four month mark, then typically also have issues down the line. So even if we correct what's going on right now, 
Right. We tend to still, then they're coming back to me when we switch to solids and then they're coming back to me when they switch to an open cup and then they're coming back to me, you know, and so, and we can work on some of these things along the way in anticipation that there may be some later challenges and to try and, you know, um, avoid uh, later feeding difficulties, but it just seems to be the case that those are those calls that I get you know, I get those repeat calls. Hey, we're back. Right. <laughs> so, Come right. on in. I love to see you, but I'm sorry that we have to meet. Right. Exactly. I love you and your child, but I'm sorry you had to call me again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk more about the sensory and motor, you know, relationship with oral function, um, and development. And, you know, it's not just oral development. Right. So, Interestingly, several years years ago, um, I was asked to speak at the NOMAS conference. Um, the neo I, I don't even remember what it stands for. You know what I'm talking about, yes, right? I know talking A lot about. of speech pathologists know. Yeah. And I was asked to speak about the motor part of feeding. And I said, but you can't separate mm-hmm. motor and the sensory. They're so connected. And the, she's like, well, I want you to do it anyways, which I wasn't able to do because I always made... I made it more focused on motor, but I also had to hit that sensory because you can't, and I think that's what a lot of people try to do. They try try to say, well, it's a a motor function, but if you have a motor function, you're going to have a sensory component somewhere. Yes. You know, it, it, you just cannot separate it. It's like when I did some consulting to the public schools, they said, well, only teach us about oral stage. We don't want to know anything about pharyngeal because we only stop at the mouth. And I'm like, but you, the swallow doesn't stop at the mouth. You can't stop at the mouth. Kind of the same thing. Um, So if you think about some of the, so if you have a baby that has restricted range of motion, they're not getting their tongue to touch the palate. They're not getting the lateral borders to touch the cheeks. They're not activating movement. So they're not used to having touch in their mouth. And so when you go to latch that baby, and so this is the baby that may or may not have that nice wide gate to get the latch and then they go like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they pull off. And so that's why we need to think about sensory. And for those babies, I teach moms some desensitizing, some really easy exercises to do in the mouth to have the first experience not be this breast nipple that's coming into the mouth. It's something that helps them be comfortable so that when it does, then they can activate the motor patterns and get that nipple to that hard, soft palate juncture or close that we really know that is, seems to be the placement for you know best breastfeeding. And so if you don't address that sensory component, and you just look at motor and you just try to get a better open mouth or you try to get that tongue in neutral, you missed the huge piece about what's going on. Because, you know, feeding incorporates motor learning and motor control. And that integrated sensory information is super important for developing those motor skills. And a a thing I tell parents that everybody can think about is, let's say you're going to pick up a glass of water and you overshoot right? You think that looks like it's a really heavy glass, but it's empty and it's light and you just like, whew. I mean, that's another way that sensory influences how our motor pattern is. And I think one of them, a couple things I think happen. When baby doesn't know how to move that tongue and get a good motor pattern, then the compensatory technique is that 
biting or the compression dominant pattern. Mm -hmm. So if the tongue doesn't work, the jaw is going to take over for them. And so you've got this super active jaw that you have to help get more graded to enable the tongue to function. And I think for me, like when I'm looking at babies, the two like really big things that stand out to me, well, a lot of things do. One is a lot of times the babies I see, their head is misshaped and they have preferential head positioning. Um, even Some of them even have gotten it by the time they got to me to the point where they're probably gonna need a helmet. Mm -hmm. um, but most of them just using some tummy time exercises and just being cognizant of how you're wearing baby or where, where baby is being positioned. Because all of those ranges of motion allows that tongue to be more active. And it also gives them proprioception and touch on the outside, which then provides some touch on the inside. And if you can get that sensory piece, then you can start activating your motor patterns a lot better. And so I see a lot of babies with tongue retraction and I, that can be because they're restricted and as they move, that's the only way that their tongue can move. But if you continue to see it and they have good range of motion or if they never really had a tongue tie and they have you know, good passive range of motion is what I mean by range of motion, um, then we need to do some techniques to get that tongue to come a little bit more forward. And those a lot of times integrate sensory like desensitization type exercises and then actively getting in and, and changing that humping tongue to the cupping and that central tongue grooving. And when I can get a baby to get that central tongue grooving more consistently, that jaw stops being so active. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I do a lot of jaw support, even during breastfeeding. Um, a lot of the babies that I see, maybe you see as well, are little extensor dominant. So they like, and it's probably airway related as well as maybe motor tone related. They love to keep that head in extension. So I do a lot of work to help get more of a Rona Alexander, I've taken a ton of her stuff when I was in my early feeding stages. And she talked about capital flexion, which is kind of the, it's not a lot of flexion, but it's kind of like what I have right now. So you're eating dinner and your head is just kind of down, but your neck is elongated. So we work a lot on those type of positionings because positioning will also affect your sensory, which also affects your motor. Yeah. And, and then, I, you know, I can, I have a little baby. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love the baby. Um, and so I know Michelle does a lot of tummy time stuff. I do tummy time as well. And I think we probably have similar focus, but I talk about planks. So I have babies, um, hips on, on mom or dad's one leg and then their elbows. Let me see if I can make it work. She's <laughs> flexible, but I get a 90 degree angle with those elbows mm. in a plank position, which then, because I have so much head extension. So I've got turtles. I got babies that do tummy time in the turtle and then their, their legs are hiked up and they're like flying like Superman. And for the babies that I see, that aggravates the reflux, that aggravates, you know, the, their muscle tone. It just keeps them really disorganized. So if I can get that, and I tell parents, you have to feel that elbow bone in your leg. Mm -hmm. So if you don't actually feel the weight of that shoulder girdle through the elbows onto your legs, then 
you don't have the right position. But if you feel that, then I feel like that baby lifts through the shoulder girdle and I'm going to move the baby instead of hyperextending. So, you know, body's, baby's body stays the same, but they can lift like this instead of lifting like this. Mm. Interesting. Now that you're yeah, saying well, this and I'm like thinking back to my first child who hated tummy time and who I could put her on me and I could put her across my lap. I could put her on my chest, but on the floor, it was like, finally, maybe around three or four months, we propped her up on like a boppy pillow or something. And then she tolerated it on her on the floor and not actually on a human. Um, and we worked through it, but yeah, I mean that I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm like, I'm sure I've got videos and pictures I can go back and look at because I'm sure that's probably how she was. And that makes a lot of sense that if we had, you know, if I had this idea of kind of doing the planking with her. Um, I wonder right. how that would have been different. Now I'm going to go try that with some of my patients. <laughs> with yoga being so popular, everyone knows what a plank is. Yes. And so we talk about, and, and of course the baby's hips are on the mom's legs or dad's mm -hmm. legs. So they're not having to hold a real plank, right. but their upper body is more in that plank position so that you're getting that lift through the shoulder girdle because obviously we know we're all connected. So shoulders going to support neck, mm -hmm. which is going to support jaw. And if you don't have good jaw stability, you're not going to get any tongue movements that are as effective as they need to be. Yeah. And I, and I love that you brought up posture because, you know, body positioning and feeding and tummy time, especially with the whole container baby thing going on with every, you know, babies yeah. are just kind of left in containers because everybody's so busy and we want to keep our children safe. We think we're keeping them safe by putting them in these things, but we're actually doing more harm that way. Um, it's just, you know, a very interesting society we live in and we're or having to do a lot babies. of cleanup. <laughs> or even the babies with reflux, they're told yeah. to be upright, yeah. and it's at, you know, 90 degree angle or, mm. or 45 degree angle. And they don't have the core to support that in those oh. containers. So they're like this. Yes. And they can't breathe, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. Really for airway. It's like, which, <laughs> which one are we going to promote at the moment? So, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you another little tip that I do. Um, I'm going to pretend that this is a towel. And so what I have, and I always say, dad, this is for you because they feel helpless, right? Yeah. Mom's breastfeeding and they're just kind of, you know, holding. Um, so I have dad take a, a, a non-stretchy towel. Um, this is a paper towel, but it, that's not what you want to do. Pretend it's a towel. <laughs> and you want to roll it as tight as you can. And you want to make it about the size of a quarter, but it depends on the size of the baby. And so that when you go like this, it does not smash. Okay. So I'm not taking the time to do that, right? And so then what you do, and of course, this is not crash tested. So you don't ever want to do it in a car seat that you're going to put in a car, but if they're just sitting at home, then you put it behind this part of their neck up to the top of their diaper, right? And then put them in their car seat like that or their, whatever they're sitting in their little boppy thing. So that now instead of sitting like this, they've got that thoracic spine support and they can actually sit more comfortably. And of course you always have to watch a baby, you know, even if you're just putting them in a seat, yeah. but that way you at least give them a little bit of the core that they don't really have yet. And they're not like stuck in a place where they can't even breathe. And then they're spitting up more. Yeah, you know, no, that, that's that interesting. Point. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. I haven't seen that support before. I know we, we do a lot of, you know, roll up towels and, and different seating situations for positioning for solids um, or even to support mom when breastfeeding and obviously supporting right. 
positioning for mom, but that's, that is an interesting one. Thank you for showing us that. And for those of you listening to the podcast, we will also put this up on YouTube. And so the video will be available for anybody who wants to pop in and take a, a peek at, you know, what, what Joan is sharing with us because um, I'm learning these techniques. Are, these are great. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it really does matter. You know, positioning is a huge thing. Just as important as keeping sensory and motor intertwined because really you can't separate the two. Like, you know, no. it doesn't work that way. So I love how you also talked about that. And I remember right out of grad school, my first feeding course I ever took was with Lori Overland. And that was one of the things she said in that course that has stuck with me always that she said, people will teach it as though they're separate systems and as though they operate independent of each other. And she said, you cannot, she's like, they're like this throughout the entire body. You cannot separate the sensory system from the motor system. And I just, for some reason, that statement to this day, I have just, I, I find myself saying it to other people. I'm like, well, Lori Overland taught me that. <laughs> so I'm glad that you also subscribe to that. <laughs> well, and another couple, I have a couple other little things that have always stuck in my head too. Um, Rona Alexander would say, what you get, at, if you want the lips, get the hips. Yeah. Right? So yeah. there's a positioning thing. And then um, I, I've always taken courses that were not necessarily speech path, you know, for speech pathologists. Like I took Mary Massery's breathing course a long time ago. Um, and I was the only speech pathologist in the whole room. And they all kind of looked at me like, what planet are you from? Why are you <laughs> And I'm like, well, because I work on feeding and swallowing. And if you can't breathe, you can't eat. And right. you know, her thing is, if you can't breathe, you can't function. And yeah. truly, you know, everything that we do, all of us, no matter who's listening, you know, speech pathologists, OTs, lactation consultants, nutritionists, physicians of any sort, you know, if you're not breathing, nothing else is going to work for yeah. you. So yeah. we, you know, that's why the positioning is so important, why sensory is so important, motor is so important. We're, we are protecting that airway. Yeah. Make and, and you really have to optimize the airway. It needs to, it's, it's not always just like about, well, I don't want to say it's the wrong way. It's not just, can we breathe, but are we you know, like we say, optimal timing of release. Are we breathing optimally? You know, I like that word optimal because if a child is mouth breathing and they have enlarged tonsils, and, and I've even seen this in children who just have a ton of reflux and they're all irritated, or there's maybe there's inflammation in the back of the throat. Um, there's just, there could be so many variations of symptoms going on, but if they're mouth breathing and they're not nasal breathing and we're trying to breastfeed them and they can't breathe through their nose, well, you know, it's not going to work. You know, and I always say breathing is life. You yes. can't breathe, you're dead. I know it sounds so morbid, but I, really? I say that sometimes, and I've said that to families before because they don't quite grasp how important breathing is. And they go, well, we're, we're not here for that. Like, we'll talk to the ENT. We're here for, you know, feeding. You won't breastfeed. Well, he can't feed if he can't breathe. So we have, we can't bypass step one. <laughs> that is always step one. We have to make sure we can breathe. So I, I love that you bring that up as well, because that's, that's a, you know, a big soapbox of mine. <laughs> yeah. And, and on every evaluation, I teach them the plank if that's needed, you know, how to keep babies. So hands are to midline when you're holding them. Cause a lot of them like to be back here. Right. And then close mouth breathing and you know nasal breathing I guess I should say with their lips closed and I'm like sometimes they're sneaky like one little baby had their lips closed but had the tiniest opening and was breathing that way and I'm like you just are so tricky <laughs> like we both were like is he breathing through his nose or his mouth and you know 
we figured it was the mouth. It wasn't the nose and we thought for sure. So that's just so important. Yeah. We're going to wrap up this episode right here and continue with part two in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.